Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for uh, this church, for these people, for the stewardship that is taking place uh, in this place. And I thank you, Father, for allowing me to be a small part of this. And I praise you, Father, for the growth that it is creating in the hearts of all who, who have made this place their home. And that we come each week with humility, with love, with, with an expectation that the work of the Spirit will be something that we each partner in and share in, and yet all of us also, Father, benefit from. I ask, Father, that as we uh, give our minds to the Word this morning and as we consider what it will teach us, that we will continue in that humble state of mind and heart, that we will be open to consider the counsel of the Word, the correction of the Word, the discipline that it might bring. But as well, Father, we know it will bring encouragement and it will bring joy to hear the truth spoken by you. And I pray, Lord, that that would be the case for each of us and that you would continue in this place, apart from any one person's participation, to preach the truth and to guide us all into a life of obedience according to it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in the point of our study where we've come to the end of the first argument that this writer is making in his discussion of the superiority of Christ. Remember, that first argument was that Christ is a greater messenger than any that have come before him, to include angels. And as a result, his message must be greater than any message that came before. And as we ended last week, we saw the writer teaching that the superiority of Christ is not to be considered diminished merely because he appeared in the form of man. That is no cause at all to think less of Christ. And the writer explained last week that Jesus came in that lowly form at the command of the Father and for the purpose of being a pioneer in our salvation, in order to grant us a salvation from death and slavery to the devil. To do that, he had to take on the same flesh and blood as you and I share so that he could act in our place, dying on the cross to save us from our sin, as you all know. Then, having taken that death for us, the writer ended last week saying that in the process of Jesus coming like men, taking that penalty in our place, he took out of the enemy's hand the main weapon that the enemy has to wield against us. That weapon is our fear of death. Your sins, my sins, have been washed away according to Scripture. That leaves us with no condemnation from God. And so though our bodies may die, we have nothing to fear from what follows, for what follows is glory for us. When you do not fear the only weapon that the devil has, he has no power over us. That's the lesson from last week. We could ignore his schemes and we can live for Christ, as all Christians should. We ended last week in chapter 2, right at verse 14, and the writer himself is now making the very conclusion I just summarized. Look at what he says in verses 14 to 15. The writer says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Jesus took our penalty, disabled the enemy, and let us live for him as opposed to living in fear. Now, having brought that conclusion, the writer has conclusively proven to the readers that Jesus' arrival as a man did not lessen his power. Rather, it reflects his obedience and his self-sacrificial love. 
Not only is Jesus greater than angels, but friends, so are you and I, in a sense. You are even more special to God than the heavenly creatures he made, than the heavenly creatures, including the angels. So not only is Christ greater than an angel, in a sense, so are you and I. We are even more precious. Look what he says next at verse 16. The writer says, for assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. This is such a powerful concluding statement. When the whole argument for the last two chapters has been, don't honor angels more than Christ, understand that Christ's lower form was a necessity for you. He's still much more powerful than an angel. He ends this with saying, and by the way, you're more precious to God than angels as well. That's a blow your mind kind of thought, isn't it? He says, assuredly, Christ did not give help to angels. Well, that begs the question, what kind of help does an angel need? What kind of help is he talking about? Well, angels are very much like you and I, like mankind, at least in a couple of ways. First of all, they're created beings. We're created beings. They were made for the purpose of serving Christ. We are likewise servants of God. We were made to serve God. Originally, Adam was called to serve God in the garden. So that's one way in which we're similar, created beings serving God. But secondly, angels like us have experienced sin and rebellion within their ranks. Just as mankind rejected God's authority in the garden and sinned, so has a part of the angelic realm also rebelled against God and come to sin. The first of those was Satan. The chief cherub, we're told in Scripture, he started the process of sin. In fact, you can read about that in Ezekiel 28. Let me just read you a passage from Ezekiel 28. Here is the definitive passage of Scripture describing Satan's fall. Verse 12 of Ezekiel 28 God speaking to Ezekiel says, son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre, which is a term for Satan, and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx and the jasper the lapis lazuli, the turquoise and the emerald and the gold. The workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as profane from the mountain of God. And I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. Satan was the first of those who sinned when he was in the Garden of Eden. At the time of his fall, we learn in Revelation 12:4 that Satan didn't just fall alone. He brought with him one third of all of the angelic realm with him. They all rebelled. They sided with him against God. So here you have the angels that we're talking about when the writer says God does not give them help. The help they need is the same help we as sinful men and women need. They are lost. They, like us, cannot return to glory on their own. They cannot erase their sin. They are separated from God by that sin, and they have no solution of their own. 
They have no hope unless the Lord would have made a way of redemption for them. But now notice what the writer of Hebrews says about this group of angels, or we could call them demons, as we often do. What does he say? The writer of the Hebrews says, Christ never authored a plan of redemption for fallen angels. He has never made any way available for them. They do not have a Messiah. They don't have a gospel to believe. There's no one walking around in the heavenly realm preaching, as it were, to demons to convert and return. No such option has been made available. And more than that, notice Christ has not taken the form of an angel so that he could experience judgment in their place. He took the form of men for our sake. And that means, consequently, that all demons stand condemned for their sin. And one day, according to Scripture, they will be judged and all punished in the lake of fire for eternity. That is the future home, the future destiny for all demons. In Ezekiel, the Lord declares that. Going two verses further in that passage I just read, listen to how it finishes. Verse 18, he says, By the multitude of your iniquities, in the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. Therefore, I have brought fire from the midst of you. It has consumed you, and I have turned you to ashes on the earth in the eyes of all who see you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have become terrified and you will cease to be forever. And then later in Revelation, we learn that not only does Satan have that destiny, but all his angels will follow him likewise and be cast down. Revelation 12:7, John describes, he says, There was a war in heaven, Michael and his angels warring, waging war with the dragon, And the dragon and his angels waged war and they were not strong enough and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. The demons. Now, the point in all this is clear, isn't it? While angels are valued servants of God, certainly They are not greater than Christ, and in fact, they are not even as valued as you and I are to God. The Father made no allowance for redemption. He has considered every fallen angel lost forever. Now, on the other hand, he made a plan of redemption available for us. And as the writer ended in that verse, he says he has gladly given help to Abraham's descendants. Notice that a descendant of Abraham in this context is someone who is of the faith of Abraham, whether Jew or Gentile. We're not talking here strictly about the the physical descendants. It says Paul explains in Romans chapter four, verse 16, when Paul says, for this reason, salvation is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace so that the promises will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So the writer says, simply put, you want to know how important angels are? Well, consider this. God didn't even plan to save the ones he lost. But what he did plan to do was to save all of those who share in the faith of Abraham. Only mankind has been given this blessing. In fact, Peter makes an interesting comment in his first letter. Peter, in 1 Peter 1.12, he says, speaking of the Old Testament saints, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which have now been announced to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. Peter's point is that all that was done in the Old Testament days was done in preparation for the coming of Christ so that you would understand it fully. 
And these things, these are things angels have been longing to look at. But they were reserved for you and I, for the church. This detail in the writer's argument is really a passing point. It's not the main point. But what a profound truth this verse is for me. Even as I move past it, I have to stop every time I read this and think about it for a minute. And it becomes more powerful the more you consider it. The Lord did not have to save anyone, whether angel or man. He chose not to save a single angel for his own reasons. That fact alone tells us he didn't have to save any of us either. If he can decide to reject 100% of the fallen angels, then he could have rejected 100% of mankind and been equally just and righteous to do so. But he didn't. I don't know how it affects you, but when I spend time contemplating the fact that of all the people who've ever lived, to all of the creation that God has made, for reasons I don't understand, he chose to save me. And knowing what I know about myself, I don't get it. I mean, it's easy to say, well, we don't deserve it. Well, 10 times 10, we don't deserve it. By any measure at all, we don't deserve it. And yet he chose to do it while passing over angels, even. To say nothing of all the other men and women who have come and gone and never known the Lord. The point is, if that doesn't humble you and me, if it doesn't cause us to think very soberly about what we do with what we've been given in our life of, of faith, I don't know what will. I mean, I don't know what more you could say. Spend some time contemplating how precious... His children are to him, that he would put his only son to death for us. And yet, even then, not for everyone, not for angels. That's why Jesus came as a man, the writer says, to be like us so that he could save us. But more than that, even as he goes next in the text to sympathize with us, to know what it means to be us. Look at verses 17 and 18. The writer says, therefore, summing this up, he says, therefore, He had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. He mentions high priest here. You know, in the law given to Israel, the Lord established a priesthood. A special class of men who would serve God in a special way. And they were led by one man in particular, the high priest. We're going to talk a lot more about priests and priesthood later in this letter when the writer gets there. But for this moment, the writer is just focused on the need for that high priest to be just like the ones he is to represent. A high priest is an important man in Israel. If you lived back in the time of the law and you lived in Israel, you would have thought of the high priest much as we think of maybe our president or Maybe that most important person in our walk of life, whatever that is. This is the one guy in Israel who had the privilege to walk into the holiest place in all of the land and perform an act that would result, the law said, in the nation receiving forgiveness for their sins, at least temporarily. He could take this action only one time a year. No one else could do it in his place. And what would you think then if you saw this guy walking around the streets? This is the guy who made sure you stayed right with God, according to the law. How much importance do you put on a person like that? Would you wash their car? Would you take them to lunch? Your attitude toward this person is, you owe them so much because of the role they played in your life spiritually. That's how the law had set it up. High priests are representatives of the people before God. And so, by necessity, he is a representative, therefore he must be like us. He had to be like us. He had to be a man. 
He has to know what it's like to be a person who falls to temptation. Imagine what kind of sympathy or lack thereof would come from a person who was supposed to represent you before God, but didn't have a clue what it was like to be tempted. How much sympathy do you get from someone like that? You get judgment is what you get. But Jesus, being a high priest in the form of man, he could be a high priest that understood instinctively what it meant to be human. It made Jesus a merciful, faithful high priest. And he understands as a result how best to intercede because he understands how temptation works in our life because he experienced it himself. Did you notice that? Jesus, we're told, was tempted. Temptation is not sin. When you feel that feeling of temptation, as you feel it, you're not sinning. Not yet. What follows defines whether you sin or not. Jesus, we're told, was tempted. Specifically, it says when he suffered, and I think that refers to at least two moments, if not more. First, it has to refer to the time he spent 40 days in the desert with with the enemy. That's the period early in his ministry where, you know, he walks out into the desert, into the wilderness, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, and he fasts for 40 days. You know, there are people who have died fasting for 40 days. Uh, This isn't some minor fast. This is to the point of physical death, very near. At the end of that, there's that really ironic understatement. He fasted for 40 days and then he became hungry. You remember that? If you've read the accounts in the gospel, I always think that's just such classic understatement. And then, only then does the enemy show up in that story, in that account, and begin to tempt Christ, to disobey, to go against what the Father is calling him to do, and to do things that anyone who was in the same situation would have been sorely tempted to do, to eat, in defiance of the fast, but beyond that even, to avoid a second kind of suffering. And I think that's the second point. Christ suffered tremendously in the Passion, on his way to the cross and to his death. And the Gospels teach us that Jesus had the power to stop the beatings and to stop the crucifixion with just a word from his mouth. He himself said in the Garden of Gethsemane that he had the power to call down a legion of angels that would have interrupted the process and defended him against his tormentors. Can you imagine how much temptation there is For someone who's undergoing that kind of physical torment, knowing that at any moment they call uncle and it's over. What kind of temptation is that? You think it's hard not to eat? Try that one. But he didn't. He went to the slaughter like a sheep, we're told. Didn't open his mouth. The point was he didn't stop it. That's the point of that prophecy. He never opened his mouth to stop it. Jesus knew the Father had determined he would die for our sins and he resisted the temptation to disobey. But he understands what it's like to sit there in that moment when you have the temptation staring you in the face and you have the argument going back and forth in your head over why it's good to give in. He knows that feeling. He also knows how to say no. You know, if you are someone who gets to that point of temptation regularly, and basically that's anyone with a heartbeat, then you may be questioning just how much help Can Jesus be in that moment? As our high priest, he sits at the right hand of the Father, we're told. And in that place, he intercedes for us with power to change people's hearts and to change our circumstances and to address our needs. And also with the experience of having lived as a man, which means he has infinite mercy and sympathy for our weaknesses and for our failures. And he has the knowledge of how to beat them. You can't say Christ can't help you with your temptation. He's been there. He's succeeded where you and I fail. You have no excuse at that point for not putting that need 
up in prayer. You have no reason not to. He can solve your temptations if you give him that chance. The secret is you've got to put it before him. As you pray, confess your temptations and ask the Lord to take those temptations away. And then when the enemy brings them back a second time, do it again. Confess your failures to someone. It's easier said than done. I'm not naive about that. But it's not as hard as you think. Easier said than done, but not as hard as you think. Watch the Lord work. Give him the chance. Don't just wait to turn to him in guilt after you've made the mistake and you fall into temptation. Trust him to turn the moment of temptation away. That's the whole point of what the writer is saying. You have a high priest who knows what it's like to be a human in a fallen world. We can seek his intercession. He has both the insight, the experience, and the power to change our hearts in the moment. In fact, I have come to believe that if in the moment of temptation you reach out, you've already solved the problem. That's really it, isn't it? It's the choice of whether you're going to keep it secret or not. It's the choice of whether or not you're going to seek the help or not. Or whether you're just going to go forward. You seek his intercession as you walk, not after you stumble. That's the key. Now, with that, the writer is ready to move on to the next topic. He's moving away from angels and into the next discussion. We're going to get only a short distance into it. But chapters 3 and 4, which is the next discussion, may be the most important one in the book. And you'll see as we move through it. Let's look at the first three verses and we'll begin. Chapter 3, verse 1 through 3. The writer says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, by just as so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. As we transition into chapter 3, let's remember the writer's purpose. The writer has a concern here that some in this early Jewish church are not fully appreciating the person and the work of Christ. It's likely that he has this concern because of things he's heard might be going on in the early church. Things like Jews returning to live under the law. Jews going back to sacrifice in the temple. Jews who were thinking the old covenant had more power and relevance in their life than the new. Living as if the Messiah had never appeared. And yet calling themselves Christian. And in the first two chapters, he's highlighted their greater reverence for angels. And he issued a warning to them. You remember the warning we covered at the beginning of chapter 2, the first of the five warnings in this book? The warning to those who are thinking angels are more important than Christ was, you ought to give more attention to this Messiah. Because if you think that angels are greater than the Messiah... What kind of penalty do you think you're going to suffer in eternity if you have not seen Christ for who he really is? If those who've disobeyed the law had physical penalties, then you might just consider what kind of penalty God is going to bring upon you if you reject a greater messenger with a greater covenant. We saw that as a call to believe the gospel. And now in chapter 3 and into 4, he's going to come back to that thought. I want you to look at the beginning. He starts with his call to the holy brethren, the partakers of a holy calling. Holy brethren, partakers of a holy calling. Wouldn't you say that's believers? Well, we know this letter went out to many churches in the diaspora, and so we can be sure that this writer had believers in mind as he wrote it. Yes, but that terminology, holy brethren and partakers of a holy calling, it is equally applicable to Jews, regardless of whether they believe in the Messiah. Jews are a holy brethren. Jews are partakers of a heavenly calling. So my point is, you can't 
automatically conclude that because he opens with that phrase that everything that follows in chapters three and four is intended to speak only to the needs of a believer. We need to stay open minded on that. We'll come back to it as the writer does. He begins, though, after that, by asking them to consider Jesus. The word consider in Greek, katanoeo, a word that means very simply to look closely at something. You find it elsewhere in the, in the New Testament in Acts chapter 7, verse 31. There's a moment in which Stephen is retelling the whole history of Israel and he talks about Moses seeing the fire, the burning fire in the bush. And he goes like this, verse 31. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight and as he approached to look more closely, katanoeo, there came the voice of the Lord. So have you ever glanced at something casually and you thought you saw it correctly? You sort of looked at a road sign, looked at someone walking by. After you've seen it, something in your brain goes, whoa, did I just see that right? You take a second look, a closer look. Now you're really studying it to see if what you saw is right. That's the sense of this in the Greek. The writer is asking his readers, I don't think you saw what you think you saw. You need to take a closer look at this Messiah who's been preached to you. Consider him again. Look more closely. And then he makes this comparison. For the Jewish reader, it would have been a stunning comparison. He says, I want you to consider a comparison to Moses. Jesus, he says, was faithful to the Father in the same way that Moses was faithful to the Father in serving in the Lord's house. And he uses a very specific Greek phrase here to describe Moses. He says Moses was a house servant. That's the most literal. Like a slave of the owner of a home. Moses acted like a slave to his master, serving in his master's home, and he did it faithfully. Now, that reference to house is a euphemism, as you probably can tell. It refers to the family of God. The people of Israel were the house of God in Moses' day. Moses was a faithful servant to the house of God, to Israel. And he was an intercessor. He brought them the law. He guided them through the desert. That's all faithful work. Then in verse 3, the writer says, Jesus gets even more glory than that. Now, if you want to get a Jew's attention in any discussion, tell him that you found someone worthy of more glory than Moses. To an Orthodox Jew, that would be a very interesting conversation. Because for most Jews, Moses is the preeminent man of God in their experience. The man who delivered Israel from slavery, he guided them in the desert, he gave them their precious covenant and their law. Even above Abraham, traditionally, Moses has the highest rank in Judaism. But the writer says, well, Jesus is worthy of greater honor than even Moses. And he says in verse 3, because Jesus is not just the master of a home, he was the builder of the home Moses served in. Now think about what that just means. That's a provocative statement. That sets up, in fact, the whole next two chapters. But in a simple word, what did the writer just say about Jesus? When he calls him the builder of the house in which Moses served, he just said Jesus is God. That was his way, in a Jewish way of saying it, to tell his readers Consider Jesus again. You know, Moses was a great man, but Moses just served Jesus. Jesus was the God that Moses was serving. He says he's worthy of more honor. Because if Jesus is the God who called Israel and led them into the desert to begin with, then anyone who served in that realm is serving Jesus. And if Jesus is the God who appointed Moses to be the person who served them, and Jesus is the one who gave the law through angels to Moses, then obviously Jesus is greater than Moses in all respects. But you have to know that Jesus is God, or you don't understand that connection. 
Take a closer look at this messenger, this prophet, this man that you think is Messiah. He is not just a man. He is God in the flesh. Do you get the feeling the writer's preparing to preach the gospel to these readers at this point? That's our first indication that he does not view himself as speaking exclusively to believers in this moment. He seems concerned that some of his readers just don't get Christ the right way. Look what he says next, verses 4 through 6. He says, for every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confession and the boast of our hope firm until the end. So every house, he says, has someone who causes it to be built. His point is, the cause of everything is God. There's always somebody in a human sense that did the work, Moses in a particular day, but we know the cause of all things is God, working through men to accomplish his purpose. So in that sense, God is the builder of every house. The point is, Moses worked under God's direction. Likewise, Christ worked in service to the Father. But as we compare their two work, we find a lesser to greater relationship. Moses, in fact, lived as a picture of Christ in all that he did. He was living a life orchestrated by God to illustrate the life and the work of the coming Messiah. I want you to notice in verses 5 through 6, the writer says that Moses' faithfulness in serving God was to be a testimony, see that? A testimony of what would be coming later. In other words, Moses was a picture of Christ. We've talked about this in the Exodus study. But there are multiple ways in which Christ is pictured in the work of Moses. The man who goes up and retrieves the word of God and delivers it to the people. The man who intercedes for the sake of Israel. The man who escorts us out of slavery and toward the promised land. So if the people of Israel wandered in the desert under Moses, and that was a house that God gave to Moses to watch over, and he did that well, let me ask you the question, what house is Jesus watching over now? Moses had his house, Jesus has his. Who is the house of God today? Well, the writer says it's the children of God, you and I. The saints are the house that God has granted to Christ to guard, and Christ is guarding it faithfully. All those who have trusted in the promise of a deliverer, of a Messiah. The writer says we are in that house. If. We don't like the word if. If is a preposition. It's conditional. It implies lack of assurance, doesn't it? The writer says we, Christians, we are in this house, the house we just learned is the body of Christ, the saved, the children of God, etc. We are in that house, in that new covenant, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to hold fast our confidence? What is a boast of our hope? And what is this end? First, the confidence of a Christian. The confidence of a Christian The one we hold on to is the confidence that our sins have been paid in full by the blood of Christ. Are you confident in that? What would you do if you're not confident that your sin is fully addressed by the work of Christ? You'd find something else, wouldn't you? You may not necessarily reject Christ, but you'd add something to it. If it's not enough, you look for more. Our confidence is in the sufficiency of Christ's work. That's what leads us to cast off any other means of salvation. Whatever you might have trusted in in the past, 
whether it be your works or some other religious point of view, once you came to understand who Christ was, truly, truly understood it, what good were those other things? You would know instinctively, immediately, they're good for nothing. Christ is sufficient. He's all that could do it. And as a result, he's all I need. I am confident in that. So confident, I give up the rest. And then there is the hope that we boast about. Well, what is the hope? The word hope in Scripture is always a reference to one and only one thing throughout the New Testament. What is our hope? The hope of every Christian? Resurrection. The hope of resurrection is the hope that you gain as a Christian. When we die, we know that the Lord promised we will experience the resurrection that he experienced as well. Therefore, death is not the end of us. Therefore, we have no reason to fear it because we will have a new body. That new one will never die again. Knowing that is a hope. It puts us in a position where we don't think about this world in the same way at all. Who cares how much money I have or who cares how successful I am? Who cares whether I live a long time or die tomorrow? Does it really matter when this is the temporary body and the new one is yet to come? Resurrection changes everything you can understand about the world around you. And it gives you a hope nothing else can. You and I typically use the word hope in the wrong way, biblically speaking. When we use it, we use it to mean some degree of uncertainty. We use it to imply uncertainty. For example, we hope it rains today. We don't know that it will, but we would like it to. Or, I hope I win the lottery. No certainty about that, but it's a desire. I hope my children will do their chores, which is like winning the lottery in my house. No certainty, but we have a hope. The Bible doesn't use the word that way. When it's used in the sense of what Christ has done for us, it has no sense of uncertainty. There is no sense of will it happen, might it happen. The word is used in a different way. In fact, it can be translated in the Greek, expect. In Greek, the word is elpis, which literally is the word for expectation. So the Bible's word for hope is like saying it this way. I expect it to rain today. I expect to win the lottery. No sense of uncertainty, complete expectation that it will happen. And for the Christian, the phrase we should be saying in our hearts is, I expect to be resurrected. I'm depending on it. I have no doubt in it. That is my hope. Not wishful thinking, but absolute confidence based on the promises of God. And though it remains unseen for now, it is no less a certainty. But that's why we call it a hope, only because it's not seen yet. That's the only reason we use the word hope, because it's yet to be, but not because it's any degree uncertain. So the writer says this, you and I can count ourselves part of the house, or let's just say it plainly. You and I know we are Christians. If we are confident that Jesus' death is sufficient, and two, if we are expecting and looking forward to our resurrection. Remember, Paul himself in Romans 10 says that faith is defined as what? If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, that's the promise of his death paying your sins, and believe in your heart that the Father raised him from the dead. That's your hope in resurrection. Do you believe he paid the price? Do you believe you'll live again? You believe those things, you're in the house of God. Then he adds that interesting piece at the end. He says, holding that fast until the end. 
If you have become convinced by the spirit that Jesus is Lord and that you will be resurrected, you will never be unconvinced because the conviction of the truth of those things does not come by flesh and blood, according to Scripture. You remember when Peter is asked the question, who do you say that I am? And he turns to Jesus and he said, you are the Christ, you are the, the living God. And he says, blessed are you, Simon Barona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven revealed it to you. The point being, you cannot come to those convictions by flesh and blood. No one gets there because in their head they decided they like it. They get there because the Spirit persuaded them. Once the work of that has been done in your heart, you're not going to change your mind. Because you've been convinced. And by your conviction, you have no doubts. And the writer says, but if you're the kind of person who comes in one day, sits in the pews, tells everyone you believe in these things, and then some point in the future you're walking in a different direction, declaring those things are no longer your conviction... All you're demonstrating is you never knew the truth in the first place. You're demonstrating that what came in your head was a temporary thought, not a true conviction of the heart. Some of these readers, at least some of them, were doing this very thing. They were turning back to the law. Not because of tradition necessarily or just practice and habit, but because they truly felt that if they didn't go back to the high priest who walked on earth and had their sins forgiven through the Levitical system, They weren't going to be in heaven, which is tantamount to saying, I don't know Christ is Lord. And that's where we'll pause. Convinced, I hope, in both the sufficiency of Christ and in the hope of your resurrection. Let's go to prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Father, for that conviction brought to us by the Spirit that we know you truly and have rested in you exclusively. And I praise you, Father, for that Grace, I know in my life it is that way, and I pray, Father, for all who've been here today and heard this, that they are similarly convicted, for that is the saving faith that provides for our salvation, Father. I pray that you would make that a real thing for each person here, that any, in fact, who have heard and not before understood these things, but perhaps now have, would be persuaded supernaturally to place their trust in you, into the work of Christ alone, And should that be the case, Father, should it be the case that in this moment that has happened, Father, by by your spirit, I pray they'd be moved to talk to me or someone in the room so that that might be a, a conversation we can complete, that we can guide them in this assurance and walk them towards you in discipleship, that they would not leave without confessing you publicly. I pray for that opportunity, Father. And I pray, Father, that this church will continue in its mission as we ask each week to be your ambassadors. Guide us into all righteousness so that we may serve you in greater ways. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.